Good morning. Welcome to Behind the Scenes with the Hanover Theater. This is Sarah Garofalo, and today we're here with a super exciting guest, Randy Gregg from Almost Clean. Welcome to the show, Randy. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Keeping busy. Good. So we're gearing up for Almost Queen, a tribute to Queen, coming to the Hanover Theater on Saturday, February 18th at 8 p.m. Um, before we start chatting about the show itself, I hear that you're a bit of a jack-of-all-trades in the band. So can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background as a musician? Uh, sure. I uh, I played in a bunch of bands prior to Almost Queen that allowed me to do some touring. And I was in some of my favorite bands, to be honest. Uh, growing up, I loved a band called Angel, and I got to tour with them for about eight years. And I played... Uh, you know, minimal shows with D Snyder from Twisted Sister. And, uh, and it was all really fantastic. And I, I wound up going into another band called Lauren Harris band, who uh, was Steve Harris's daughter from Iron Maiden. So eventually we became main support for Iron Maiden. And I did a ton of touring with them. And, we, you know, I was on their airplane tour twice. And so I got around a lot. And all through the years, I've you know, was just someone who I had stage hand, you know, I was a stage hand at like Nassau Coliseum and Jones Beach Theater for a while. So going on these tours, I just started to learn a little bit more and a little bit more and sat in the production office with Iron Maiden and learned a little bit more. And uh, when the time came, I eventually started to apply, you know, those things to almost Queen. So I wound up, uh, you know, being the tour manager for the band and uh you know managerial duties and stuff so i'm a, a little bit uh <laughs> i wear many hats if i could say it that way <laughs> yeah um, that's super you cool. know but it's all to just keep it within the band and our interests and not have any kind of people outside because that's how when almost queen started there was a lot of you know people uh nibbling at the table and not really doing the job that we wanted them to do so eventually just things kept growing and growing and growing for me and uh i just became more managerial at, at all the things needed for almost queen and uh you know it's a bunch of a learning you know learning experience for me and you know it was for years so i was very happy to just apply that and keep it within the band and it's just been this family business for us that's awesome um yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned all those projects because I was poking around on your website, which is very cool, by the way. I, I enjoy your um, Star Wars-esque logo. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm a, a bit of a Star Wars fan. I have about 17 Star Wars tattoos. So when we're playing Bicycle Race Live and Joe sings the line, and I don't like Star Wars, there's always this grunted look on my face. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, so I like your little timeline you've got on there. Um, and you you uh, mentioned most of your projects, but um, one that stuck out to me was that you worked with Thin Lizzy for a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I uh, <laughs> I got the call. I just got out of the shower, had a towel wrapped around me, get a call from the tour manager of the band. And I he was a friend of mine at the time and said, I, you're in a new band. What, what do you mean I'm in a new band? You're in a new band. Like, you're just going to go into rehearsals. There's no tryouts. I've already spoken very highly about you and this and that. And you just kept waiting and waiting. I'm like, what is it? What is it? What is it? And when he said Thin Lizzy, I just kind of dropped, you know, and another, again, another big band I kind of grew up on. And 
loved. And uh, getting into that was, you know, basically this big jump for me. Now I'm on a tour with tour buses and, you know, we're doing a whole uh, United States tour and uh, or actually Europe and stuff like that. And then the second tour, we, we opened up for Deep Purple. And to be out with uh, Deep Purple was just mind blowing. And uh, I remember the last day of the tour, I was dragged on stage by Roger Glover to play Smoke on the Water with the guys in Thin Lizzy joining Deep Purple on stage. So that is one of the top five moments in my life playing like the biggest air guitar song you could ever think of <laughs> on stage with those guys. But, you know, what an experience playing with Scott Gorham and John Sykes. And like, it just really leveled me up a lot. And uh, again, I, I couldn't have been happier. Every time we played, fans would see me and they would see the way I was on stage. And I was always smiling. And it was always a joke because fans would go, wow, you really like Thin Lizzy. I love Thin Lizzy. Like, I love being here. I love playing these songs. It was really like uh, just an unbelievable honor to even be a slight smidgen of that band for its existence. That's so cool. I So I read a story that you heard two Queen songs at a neighbor's house and you were immediately inspired. Um, can you tell us a little bit that, about that story? Sure, sure. I was in, I was in kindergarten and just, just around the corner from my house, there was just, a, there was like a, a teenager or, he would just play records for all the kids on the block. And one day I had been there by myself and he played Tie Your Mother Down by Queen. And I guess my face dropped because I thought, uh, I, you know, because I saw him go, oh, you like this? And I just kind of shook my head. Yeah. And he went, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Took the record off and put on Bohemian Rhapsody. And I think I said, I want to do that. And the moral is be careful what you wish for, because then I wound up being in a queen band, which was, you know, a very easy choice when I was coming out of Thin Lizzy. Um, there was an opportunity to play with Almost Queen. They had just started. And someone said, do, do you want to play in a queen band? I'm like, boy, do I. I mean, this has been this was the band that I drew their logo on my kindergarten book 73 times, you know, and just grew up with queen and. I've watched Live Aid 632 times because anytime it comes on, I have to stop what I'm doing. To this date, you know, I've been playing in Almost Queen. It's almost 19 years now. And there's never a time I'm sick of playing a song or not watching, you know, a live clip of Queen. And, you know, it's there's just such an incredible, incredible band. And my whole life, I've always thought, how is it that no one, like everyone in the world should love Queen? What's going on? You know, so... It was a pretty easy decision for me to join Almost Queen. And it was a nice little notch in my personal belt to perform these songs. You know, they're really difficult to perform musically and more so vocally. So it was a nice little uh, test for myself and the rest of the band to see if we can pull this off. And I, I really have to step outside of myself and pat ourselves on the back. We've been doing a really, really good job, you know, especially the last 10 years. We've just been on fire. It's been really, really great feeling to pull these songs off live. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the show on February 18th. Um, right. So you guys are a lookalike and soundalike band, correct? Pretty much. And if I may right now, <laughs> you know, our singer, Joseph Russo, you know, looks like Freddie, the mustache, the, the, the you know, the garb, all the, you know, plays piano, sings the vocal, plays the acoustic guitar, does everything Freddie does. Our guitar player, Steve Leonard, you know, needs a wig. He's got pinned straight hair, but he has the wig and the Brian May guitar and plays the part. And John, you know, 
looks looks a little like Roger Taylor as well and stuff. And uh, there was a fight for me to try and look like John Deacon, which is a really hard thing to do. You, you think it would be hard to pull off the Freddy, but John Deacon was not a very uh, stylistic kind of guy. And uh, his fashion was not really the choice. I remember when I joined the band, I said, guys, the only thing I'm not doing is, is wearing like gym shorts and tube socks on stage. I just, you know, and I love John Deacon. Don't get me wrong. He's like one of my, always been one of my favorite bass players. So I tried to mock the outfits early on what he wore in the seventies and even down to like the, the news of the world tour, he wore overalls, which I got made and, uh, you know, trying to look like John Deacon was a very difficult thing for me. And we'd always get complaints along the way. Your bass player doesn't look like John Deacon. And I'm like, Oh boy, you know, I do have long hair. So I tried to emanate the seventies one. And then after a while, someone in the band was like, yeah, I think you should just be the rock guy. <laughs> so now I have the excuse on stage of, you know, I usually say, you know, that I'm a mixture between John Deacon and Adam Lambert, and that kind of connects everything because I'm a little bit more flashy or whatever. But uh, our show has such an entertainment value at all times, and I think that maybe that's what kind of surpasses any kind of negative. Oh, he doesn't look like John Deacon, you know. And I also don't stand around like John Deacon. I'm very involved with being on stage and trying to be as entertaining as possible and stuff like that. And I think uh, in the end, I think I've been winning some people over the last few years. So it hasn't been such a problem, but for the most part, <clears throat> the band is a, a look and sound alike version of Queen. Cool. Um, yeah. So I want to ask you, what are your favorite songs to perform on stage um, with Almost Queen? And what songs can the audience expect to hear when they come to the show? Well, we usually, excuse me, usually, uh, you know, it's always been where we've gone into a, a new venue. We'll try to do as many of the hits as possible and try to make those, you know, everybody happy. And then if we come back, we might switch up some of the, the B-sides a little bit. And then when we come back, we might even throw in some deep cuts because we're always getting you know, requests for crazy songs from, from real avid Queen fans and stuff. So there's always this line that we feel we need to hover around to try and make everyone really, really happy. So there's never a show we've never not played Bohemian Rhapsody or We Will Rock You, We The Champions, Under Pressure. I mean, the list goes on of like the big, big songs. So we, we usually try to do that. And we also try to sneak in a little thing to make the real big queen fans happy and stuff and uh you know for ourselves as well we don't really want to do the same set list all the time and you know it's like a marriage you have to keep it you know fresh and exciting and stuff like that but there is not one queen song i do not want to play not one even after 19 years i know a lot of bands i know a lot of big you know touring bands and stuff and they're sick of their hits they don't want to play their hits you know and like <laughs> cheap trick is done playing i want you to want me they hate doing it right but there's just not a queen song and maybe it's because we don't own you know it's like you ask an artist like what's the, what's some of the favorite songs you have written and you'll usually hear that artist refer to their songs as like their children right they're all my children i love them all for different reasons and this and that and i can't really choose one song or whatever and for my case i feel like queen songs are my stepchildren <laughs> and although i didn't write them or whatever we've been playing them for 19 years and they've become a big part of everyone in the band but there isn't a song i could i could tell you oh this song is a little more difficult to pull off and this one's a little more but there's never a time that i'm like i don't want to play that song because that's 
pretty much the Queen fan I am. And I'm sure it's the same way with the rest of the guys in the band. You know, no one has gotten sick of, oh, do we have to play that again? We've just, we never hear that. So, um, you know, but difficulty levels, that's that's another point. You know, it took us a little while to get like somebody to love. It's very difficult with the vocals and we are the champions. And, you know, obviously Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, it was very hard to like really get under our belts. But uh, I remember years and years ago, uh, me, the guitar player, Steve, and the drummer, John, locked ourselves in John's house in one day and didn't come out until we had the harmonies that would work for the four piece that we have. We, we all do four part harmonies in the band. So it's a real plus uh, that we are a four piece band, just like Queen, but we're lucky that there are four singers in the band that can kind of recreate the studio versions. And that was always, and it's just such a great accomplishment to do four part harmonies these days. A lot of bands are not, you know, don't have, you know, the vocal ability to do four part harmonies. So it's always a thrill playing live on stage and pulling off what I feel are some of the most difficult songs to recreate. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds amazing. I'm definitely, definitely looking forward to the show. Um, so are we. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, yeah. For those of you who are just joining, I am talking to Randy Gregg from Almost Queen, a tribute to Queen, which will be performing at the Hanover Theater on Saturday, February 18th at 8 p.m., there are still some great seats available starting at just $19.50. Um, tickets can be purchased at thehanovertheater.org. Randy, do you have any parting words for our audience before we wrap up? If the audience wants to check it out, we do have a website, almostqueen.com, and they can go on, see some video and photos and get acquainted with the band. And there's also tour dates on there as well, which might make it easier for them to click the link to the show. You know. Sounds good. All right. Well, we will see you here in February. And everyone listening at home, thank you for joining us on Behind the Scenes of the Hanover Theater. And we'll be back next week. morning welcome to behind the scenes with the hanover theater this is sarah garofalo and today i'm joined by a very special guest the artistic director of tht rep livy scanlon welcome livy hi thanks for having me sarah thank you for joining us um today we're here to talk about some very special upcoming shows we've got a lot of things coming to the brick box right around the corner so livy could you give, give us a little rundown of the shows that are upcoming Sure. So these are THT Rep shows. Uh, THT Rep is the abbreviation for the Hanover Theater Repertory, which is a new initiative of the Hanover Theater and Conservatory. We had a nice fall season with uh, Macbeth by Julie, by uh, 
Shakespeare <laughs> and um, the return of the Edgar Allan Poe doubleheader. And some folks caught us even uh, earlier than that with Julius Caesar on the Common a couple summers ago. So just to contextualize, that's who we are and what we've done so far. Um, and coming up in March, we have a pair of experimental staged readings. The first is an original piece. It's called Judith. And it's written by a living playwright named Katie Bender, directed by Brendan Fox, and I'll be acting in it. Uh, this is a project that Katie, the playwright, and I have been working on for a couple of years, and it reimagines um, a version of history where Shakespeare's sister actually moves to London and takes up his name and passes as a man and works as a playwright, and hijinks ensue. Um, so we're doing a stage reading of that on Monday night, March 13th. It's open to the public uh, with our tiered ticketing, uh, which ranges from $8 to $150 now. And um, the real goal of the staged reading is to share the play, uh, to get feedback on it, and to also invite members of the theater industry, both local, uh, national, and international, because we'll be live streaming it so folks from far away can tune in to um, generate some interest in the play so that hopefully we can perform it not only in Worcester, but uh, at other theaters, uh, you know, in the, in the area or beyond. So that's happening on March 13th, Judith, a new play, staged reading, uh, written by Katie Bender, directed by F Brendan Fox, and uh, I'll be performing it. And then right on the heels of that, we're doing an experimental staged reading of The Crucible, which is not at all a new play. In fact, it's one of the iconic American plays ever written by Arthur Miller. And the experimental twist on this staged reading is that we're trying the play with an all-female cast. So the men's roles will be played by women. The women's roles will be played by women. And we're looking at how the play's themes of um, sort of misogyny and uh, oppression against women um, resonate when women are playing the men's roles. Um, we're also looking a little bit at uh, the role that white women play in society as both sort of uh, occupying space as victims and victimizers. So the cast is, um, uh, is largely white women with a few actors of color cast carefully and thoughtfully in certain roles. So um, that's the kind of experimental nature of, of that play uh, and what we're looking at with our staged reading there. So The Crucible, uh, we're running for five nights, March 29th to April 2nd. And uh, again, that is uh, the iconic play by Arthur Miller about the Salem witch trials uh, a few centuries back uh, that he originally wrote in response to the McCarthy era political witch hunts. So that's my spiel. Awesome. What questions do you have for me or what else can I explain or clarify? Um, I was wondering, could you explain the tiered ticketing a little bit for yeah, our listeners? Totally. So um, we just offer a variety of price points and ask people to pay what they can um, in both directions, by which I mean if uh, the price of a ticket uh, of a regular, you know, cost ticket to the theater is too much, we have a subsidized option that starts at $8. And if you're a person of means and you can support the theater, you could choose to uh, pay for a ticket that is $150, which would include uh, a gift to um, our current $1.5 million match. So really, the idea is you pay what you're able to, 
Um, there's five tiers. There's eight dollars. There's um, you'll have to help me, Sarah. I think the middle tiers are somewhere in the twenties, somewhere in the forties. Mm -hmm. Then we have the higher up tiers, 110 and 150. So it's totally egalitarian. Any seat is available at any price, and people choose what they can pay uh, based on that information. Since we're talking about all these upcoming shows, do you want to talk a little bit about your inspiration behind where you got the ideas to perform these? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I long ago had the idea for a play, a solo play for for a queer actor, namely myself, <laughs> um, a solo play where a woman passes as Shakespeare. But I am not a playwright at all. My dear friend and colleague Katie Bender is a great playwright, and um, she writes uh, both solo shows and larger uh, larger pieces. And I just think she her work sort of shares a. Uh, quality with with my work, um, and we've supported each other for a long time. So I basically commissioned her to take my idea and run with it. Um, and now we're sort of fully kind of co-partners of this piece, Judith, we are, and she's taken it. She's the one who decided to make the woman specifically Shakespeare's sister, which is such a cool twist. Um, and she really took my idea and did exactly what I hoped. She completely ran with it and made it her own and made it much more than I would have ever been able to. Um, and we're really looking forward to sharing it with the public. It's had um, it's had some extensive development. We did a reading at a small theater in Austin, Texas, which is where Katie is based, the Hyde Park Theater. Um, love those folks down there. Special shout out to them. Hyde Park was so enthusiastic about the piece, they gave it a non-equity production to develop it further. So that was last summer. So it ran for a few weeks down in Austin, and it actually won uh, a nice award down there. Um and so now we're ready to give Judith her first, you know, fully professional production. And the point of the staged reading is to get people psyched about it um, and for us for us to hear it again and, and for me to act it again and, and make sure we think that it's it's ready and it's done. Um, and the director that we're working with, Brendan Fox, he's just enormously impressive. Um, he has directed plays uh, from L.A. to Prague. Um, he just has an enormous resume and he's based in Worcester now. Um, I hope we can keep him. And, um, I just really look forward to being directed by him because he's got such an enormous body of work and, um, I think has a really nice touch with people. And I imagine therefore a really nice touch, um, with actors and with a creative team. So, uh, I look forward to working with him in a professional capacity for the first time. So that's sort of how Judith came to be. And I've long been obsessed with The Crucible. Um, it's such an incredible play. I remember reading it for the first time in ninth grade English with my teacher, Mr. Ladd, um, who did a great Giles Corey impression <laughs> when we read it out loud. Um, so I've just sort of always been obsessed with this play. It's just really powerful. And of course, as I get older and as the world changes, my relationship to the play changes. And I'm currently, you know, with all that has um, sort of happened or is happening in our country between um, abortion rights being jeopardized and this sort of rise of like the Karen phenomenon and how white women sort of abuse their privilege. Um, I'm interested in how these things, uh, these sort of current phenomena can live in this iconic play uh, 
and I'm always thrilled to give as many women as possible the opportunity to work. So, you know, doing a, a big cast uh, with an all-female team is an exciting thing for me. Um, so that's that's how that piece came to be. Um, you know, and the, the reason we're doing a staged reading of The Crucible instead of a full production is because it's a big, expensive play to produce, and I want to be confident in this concept before we take the plunge and um, fully produce it. Even as is, it's expensive to do as a staged reading. I want to thank the um, Mercury International Trading Corporation for sponsoring the piece. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's nice to work on something without the pressure of, of a full production and the outcome of a full production. So to have the space and time to work on it as a staged reading is a real gift um, and also a fun way for the public to sort of engage with the piece. Um, I'm working on a series of speakers to um, participate in talkback discussions with the audience after each reading. So um, we have um, Valerie Zaletsi windham and Camille Holmes from Promoting Good. Um, they actually also work with THT Rep as our DEIB counselors. So they're going to host a talkback um, where we can discuss the sort of racial implications of the play. And then I'm chatting with a couple of local professors, one at WPI, one at Holy Cross, who um, specialize in women and gender studies. Uh, I, I can't reveal their names yet because they're not they're not signed on the dotted line, but I'm hopeful to engage them in audience uh, discussions. And then, of course, the creative team will be available to answer questions and dialogue with the audience about what they see and experience when they see the crucible done um, in this in this style and in this manner. So so that's how that project came to be. Awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to all of these and I hope that everyone at home is also. It's going to be an amazing time and the Brick Box is great to see shows in. It's a very intimate setting um, if you've never been there. But all of these, both Judith and The Crucible, are on sale at thehanovertheater.org. That's theater with an R-E. And as Livy mentioned, there's the tiered ticketing that you can sort of choose your price and pay what you can. So any parting words before we wrap up? Maybe just clarifying, yeah, the Brick Box Theater is a smaller theater. As Sarah said, it's around the corner from the Hanover Theater. We actually manage the space on behalf of the Worcester Cultural Coalition. So the Brick Box Theater is in the Jean McDonough Art Center at 20 Franklin Street, around the corner from the Hanover. And the Brick Box is the home of Hanover Theater Rep. So Hanover has sort of spread its wings a little bit. We still have the big touring shows that you know and love here in the big house on Main Street. And now THT Rep is performing um, original stagings of classic works uh, in the Brick Box Theater. So very different and very complementary theater experiences that you can now have downtown uh, between the big shows on the big stage and our little experimental, um, small but mighty experimental works uh, in, the, in the Brick Box. Exactly. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. And everybody else, I will see you next time on Behind the Scenes.